Let's explore the ages with Mist this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 29 of the Upper Memory Block Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joe, and I'm back with you once again to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. Really excited. This week, we're going to go deep into this game, deep into the development and all kinds of really cool stuff all about it. Um, I guess what's been going on here in the past two weeks, uh, the weather has gotten hot and then all of a sudden it has gotten cold again. But uh, the sun's out. I cut my grass for the first time, so so that's always great. Uh, my wife and I and some friends from Ottawa ran uh, a 10K race last weekend, our first 10K of the uh, of the year, the Mississauga uh, Mississauga 10K, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Fran and I both came in under an hour, which is kind of what we wanted to do. So that's all well and good. And uh, yeah, we just had had a lot of fun, and uh, we may we may run more this, this season. Probably try and do a, a half marathon later in the season, something like that. But uh, I guess we shall see. Spring is here, summer's on the way. It's nice out. It's nice to get outside, run around. Maybe I'll, I'll pull my bike out, do a little bit of that, and uh, and yeah, hooray! I'm happy. I'm happy. the The cold is mostly gone, except for today for some odd reason. But that is that. Enough of me blathering on about the weather. It is time for the news. So we have a few news items this week. Uh, To begin with, a little bit of movement from Disney in the aftermath of the killing, I guess we could say the unceremonious killing of LucasArts. On May 6th, Disney and Electronic Arts announced that they are entering an exclusive multi-year agreement in which EA will undertake the responsibility of releasing new games for what they call a quote-unquote core gaming audience this basically means is gamers you know non-casual games uh which the casual type stuff disney will uh, will keep in house uh i'm not entirely sure what to make of this just yet uh I, I know a lot of us have some not so positive thoughts regarding ea as a publisher but uh you know i can't really say that LucasArts's track record of late was very much good so perhaps some new blood i mean it's not like all the companies that ea works with all the companies that EA owns are bad companies. It's sometimes EA's management kind of gets in the way and they had a big, a big shuffle there with uh, the CEO leaving. And, uh, you know, we can only hope that, um, EA will turn a new leaf to some degree and, uh, and, and God knows, but, uh, you know, some new blood will hopefully give us some fun and fresh star Wars games. Uh, in fact, shortly after this announcement did go out, internet watchers, if you want to call them that found that EA, Either EA or Disney, I can't quite remember who, but I think it was EA, had begun reserving quite a few Star Wars-related domain names. So I guess we will see what comes out of this. I will post a link to the press release in the show notes and and keep you in the loop. Because, I mean, technically, this isn't really about retro gaming. But, you know, LucasArts was a big part and, you know, will always remain a big part of the games that I talk about and the time period that I talk about. So anything that happens kind of with their legacy and Star Wars games in general, also being that I'm a huge Star Wars fan, I will most likely keep talking about on the show. So next, as a sort of follow-up uh, to the last show on the new SimCity, 
still talking about EA, I guess. Max has put out a short, uh, kind of a, a sort of a, a teaser announcement, I guess we could say, this week that we will soon be seeing The Sims 4, or at least more information about The Sims 4. Uh, there's really no more info than that right now. You can sign up for their mailing list. Uh, I really enjoy The Sims series. Uh, I play all of them to some degree. I think I was never a huge, like, diehard Sims fan, but I definitely played a lot of the original, a little bit of Sims 2, a little bit of Sims 3. Uh, and I'm very interested to see both what uh, Sims 4 will be bringing to the table and also uh, if the less-than-stellar launch of SimCity will have any bearing on the decisions made for The Sims 4. Uh, initial rumblings, I think Veronica Belmont was uh, reporting that uh, The Sims 4 will not require an always-online connection, but I figure it's probably too early to tell any of this stuff for sure. We'll wait for uh, the horse's mouth and and what everyone has to say. So a link to where you could sign up for that email list will, as always, be in the show notes. Finally, in the news, Bethesda has announced a new game in the Wolfenstein series. It will be called Wolfenstein New Order and uh, actually takes place in an alternate version of the 60s where the Nazis won the Second World War. The trailer looks quite interesting and I'll keep you all posted as more news becomes available. I have a link to a Kotaku article where uh, you can see what they have to say. There's a link there to the official... Uh, Announcement by Bethesda on GameSpot and a really cool uh, trailer, a teaser trailer. All right, time for some emails. We've got a few emails this week, but for the moment, for the pre uh, pre main part of the show part, I am going to uh, just go for one of them. It's a short little note from Andreas, who we haven't heard from from quite in quite a while. He writes, "Hi, Joe." Uh, lately you've been covering a lot of games that I haven't played and that's why I haven't been mailing. Just sending you this one to let you know that I'm still listening every week and loving the heck out of the show. As for SimCity, the only one I really played is the first one on SNES and I think I already mailed in about that one last time. I tried SimCity 4 once but sucked horribly at it and quickly gave up. I don't think I'll play 5 but I do like to watch B-double-O play it on YouTube sometimes. He's highly recommended if you like watching Let's Plays by the way and he gives me a link to B-double-O's uh, YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash user slash capital B, the word double O 100. Thanks, Andreas. Great to know you're still, uh, you're still floating around. I was actually, uh, I actually was wondering a little bit. I'm like, oh, did I say something to Andreas to make him stop emailing? But, uh, good to know. Uh, and you know, I don't, I, I won't sit and necessarily watch Let's Plays just kind of for entertainment value, but Let's Plays are actually very helpful in me doing the show because as much as, uh, and I do play every game that I talk about to some degree. Uh, it's just, you know, some in some two-week spans between shows, I have a lot more free time where I do want to play, you know, through as much of the game as I can, and sometimes I just don't have time to play as much. So, you know, I play at least an hour or so of, of every game at the very least. Most of them I play more, but uh, for the times where either, A, I don't have enough time to play through as much of the game as I like, I'll go to the Let's Plays. There's a lot of Let's Plays for for games that I like talking about, these kind of more... 80s and 90s games or if there's a specific part of the game that I wasn't able to get to see and I know that I have to go and, and look at it I want to I want to pull something out or things like that again I go to uh, I go to some let's plays so they're they're a huge hugely great uh, great tool for me doing this show well thanks so much I'm glad you're still listening and uh, please do keep on emailing whenever whenever you feel like you have something to say. And that goes for everybody else. You guys got something to say, you send me an email, podcast at umbcast.com. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. 
time for so on to the main topic of the show we got here a little faster than we normally do so i'm a bit happy about that so this week we are talking about mist so the mist series consists of five games or at least five games uh, published by various combinations of cyan worlds and ubisoft uh, the first game, simply named Mist, was released in 1993. It was developed by Cyan and published by Broderbund Software. We haven't talked much about Broderbund uh, on the show thus far. So as we always do, let's talk about the genre. So Mist is technically a graphic adventure game. Uh, we've seen quite a few graphic adventures before. Sam and Max, Space Quest, King's Quest, Full Throttle, probably a few more. And uh, it, this definitely won't be the last adventure we're talking about. Uh, the era I cover on this show really was the heyday of the graphic adventure game. Now, Myst does take a slightly different approach. Actually, why am I even saying slightly? It takes a very completely different approach to the genre than we've seen before. Uh, past adventure games have you directing your main character through an animated world from the third-person view, interacting with objects, interacting with other people, reading and listening to narration, description, conversation, and everything else we've talked about in all the adventure games we've already discussed. Myst is quite a different adventure game for a few reasons. Firstly, that it is much, much more puzzle-heavy. Uh, the adventure elements of the game that is guiding your character through the world, uh, which, by the way, is actually from a first-person view as opposed to the standard third, is really just a framework to string all the puzzles of the game together. So I'd really argue that Myst is more of a puzzle game with adventure-style connective tissue than kind of more of a traditional adventure game that we've already discussed. Of course, we will see much more about that when we get to the gameplay section. For now, though, let's talk about the story. So aside from the puzzles... The most important aspect, or the most complex, I guess, aspect of Myst is the story. It is deep, it is interesting, and it is compelling. It all begins with a small blurb in the game's manual. It states, You have just stumbled upon a most intriguing book, a book titled Myst. You have no idea where it came from, who wrote it, or how old it is. Reading through its pages provides you with only a superbly crafted description of an island world. But it's just a book, isn't it? As you reach the end of the book, you lay your hand on a page. Suddenly, your own world dissolves into blackness, replaced with the island world the pages has have described. Now you're here, wherever here is, with no option but to explore. So upon reading the manual a bit more, or maybe beyond reading some uh, some additional material that aren't in the manual, we find out our character is known only as The Stranger. Uh, with this information in mind, we boot up the game and are presented with the introduction, providing a little bit more information. I realized the moment I fell into the destroyed as I had planned. It continued falling into that starry expanse of which I had only a fleeting glimpse. I've tried to speculate where it might have landed. I must admit, however, such conjecture is futile. Still, questions about whose hands might one day hold my mistbook are unsettling to me. I know my apprehensions might never be allayed, and so I close, realizing that perhaps the ending not yet, yet, written, written. 
So it seems like this is the person who wrote the book. He doesn't seem to be in a very happy place. Uh, this game has a huge backstory, which is mostly relayed via a series of books you find in the library within the first few minutes of gameplay. All the books in the library are ruined except for two colored books on either side of the room and four books on the large bookshelf at the back of the room. Reading through the four undamaged books, we see they are all written by a being named Atrus. The books describe his travels to what he refers to as different ages. Each age has a unique environment, inhabitants, and events that, that shape that specific age. Atrus visits some ages multiple times and observes changes to the people and the environment. Through the books, we also learn Atrus has a wife named Catherine and two sons, Cirrus and Akinar. Initially, Catherine and the boys remain on Mist Island, Atrus's home base, and uh, the island that we find ourselves stranded on. As the boys grow, however, Atrus begins taking them along on his journeys to the other ages. They help Atrus build the fences in the mechanical age, and uh, he eventually leaves them on their own to live with uh, the tree dwellers found in uh, another age. You are listening to the Upper Podcast. So on to the gameplay portion of the show. Uh, we skipped ahead a little bit on story, but so let's rewind here. We launch the game and see the intro. At any point, you can uh, jump into the menu and restore a previously saved game, but if you let things run, you're presented with your newly found Mist book. Looking at this book, uh, on the right-hand page, we show a small window with kind of a fly-through of a mysterious island, which we will soon learn is the Island of Mist. Clicking on the animated window completes the link and takes you through to the island. You witness the fly-through full screen, and then you find yourself on a deserted dock next to a sunken boat on a small island. This is where your first-person journey really begins. At this point, you don't have a quest. You're just trying to figure out where you are and how you can get home. So I guess we have to do the only thing we're capable of doing here. We need to explore. The actual gameplay mechanics of Mist are very, very straightforward. This is a pixel hunt type adventure. Uh, you don't have action icons, nor do you even really have a walk kind of action. Each screen is pre presented to you is, is a static image, which can only be seen from a single angle. Actionable items on the screen are denoted by hotspots. Generally, clicking on a hotspot will cause some kind of action to occur. For example, clicking on a door will open it, clicking on a ladder will climb it, Pressing a button will cause a machine to operate, uh, things like that. Other actions require you to move the mouse in some way. You may need to click and drag the mouse to turn a crank, click and hold to move some gears, or, or other stuff like that. Pulling levers, all, all things like that require a mouse movement as opposed to just a mouse click. So as I said, instead of directing your character around from place to place using a more standard adventure game style walk function, clicking ahead on the screen will move you to the next screen, uh, ahead of you if such a screen in fact exists. Clicking left or right will generally rotate you in that direction and allow you to move forward in the new direction, if again that's possible. Usually moving from place to place happens in a crossfade, so you don't see your view move from one place to another, you simply fade out of your current view and fade into your next view. Uh, this movement system is occasionally frustrating, but you get the hang of it pretty quickly, it's all pretty intuitive. So making your way off the dock and up onto the island itself, you quickly come to a screen with a note lying on the ground. It appears to be from Atris, whom we haven't met yet, to his wife Catherine, whom we also haven't read about at all up to this point. 
It reads, Catherine, I've left you a message of utmost importance in our fore chamber beside the dock. Enter the number of marker switches on this island into the imager to retrieve this message. Yours, Atris. Hmm. Uh, as you wandered off the dock, you noticed a pedestal with a switch on top of it. Could this be the marker switches that the note's referring to? Well, it might be. While you continue wandering the island, keep this clue in mind. In fact, Mist is a very good game to play with a notepad next to you. This is actually... I've mentioned this in a couple of other games where sometimes it's good to write things down and whatever, but I think this is the first game that I've covered where you do need to have a notepad next to you. In my playthrough for the game, I ended up with a few pages worth, not just kind of a few things here and there, a few pages worth of notes. Kind of things like different notes, like clues like this, scribbles, diagrams, all this stuff, just trying to keep track of all the small clues and hints I found in my wanderings. This is where Miss is truly a unique game. There's a reason I had to jump ahead in the game to give you a little bit of background. When you start the game, you know nothing. The game unravels at your pace. There's no enemies, there's no threat of dying, there's no physical violence at all. Your main task is to explore and find out where, where you are and what exactly is going on. Soon enough, you come across the library I talked about in the story section. Here you can read all the books referring to the different ages. You'd learn about Atris, Catherine, and their sons. There are also two other books here, as I mentioned in the story section, a red one and a blue one. Opening them reveals that they're more of the magical books similar to the one that brought you here. However, it looks like there's something wrong. Instead of a crisp and clear picture, you see static with a person who seems to be trying to communicate. However, the messages from both books are so garbled that you can't even make them out. Next to each book, there's a page matching the color of the book, red next to the red book and blue next to the blue book. Taking these pages and inserting them into their respective books clears up the garbled message ever so slightly. Now, instead of pure, unintelligible static, we can make out a vague request. Here's the message from the red book. So it seems that we are being asked to bring more pages, and I guess doing what we did, place them in the books. Well, that's something to do at least. The question is, how do we do it? Well, let's do what we can do and continue exploring. As we continue around the island, we find a few more locations, including what looks like a power generating station, an observatory, and even a rocket. Each location has some degree of interactivity with zero explanation. Another hint is revealed when you figure out how many switches exist on the island. Referring to the note, you make your way back down to the dock and fiddle with the device found in a small room accessible just off of it. It's a message from Atris to Catherine. Catherine, my love, I have to leave quickly. Something terrible has happened. It's hard for me to believe. Most of my books have been destroyed. Catherine is one of our sons. I suspect Agatha, but I shouldn't leap to conclusions. I'll find him and Cirrus as well. Oh, I should have known better than to have left my library unchecked for so long. <sighs> well, I've removed the remaining undamaged books from the library and placed them in their places of protection. You shouldn't have to use the books until I return, but if you've forgotten the access keys, remember the tower rotation. Oh, and don't worry, Catherine. Everything will be fine. I'll see you shortly. 
Oh, and erase this message after you viewed it, just to be safe. Huh. Well, there's two men inside the books in the library. Could these be Atris's sons? The observation tower? Where's that? What clues does it hold? So this is how the game progresses. Eventually you uncover clues which lead you to uncover the different linking books hidden around the island, which allow you to access the different ages you read about in the library. In each age, you find a new page of each of the colored books, and the story is slowly revealed to you. It's up to you to decide who is telling you the truth. Is it Atris himself? Is Atris even still alive? Or is one of his sons guilty of destroying the books in the library and wreaking havoc across the ages? The choice is yours, and the result of those choices gives you one of four separate endings. Despite the very basic play mechanics, Myst was a truly unique and revolutionary way to play an adventure game. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Not only was Myst a marvel of unique gameplay features, anyone who played it in the early 90s will tell you it was a technological marvel as well. In 1993, CD-ROM drives were not incredibly common. In fact, I remember a friend of mine, I may even have mentioned this on the show before, he got a new 386 that had a cartridge loading CD drive. So you had a special kind of, it basically looked like a CD case uh, that you'd have to put the CD in and then you'd load the cartridge with the disc in it into the drive. Anyways, Myst was one of the first games to ship on CD-ROM only. Because of all the multimedia, all the video, all of that stuff, there wasn't enough... It, was, it would just be impossible to ship this game on discs. So the basic PC system requirements for Myst were a 386 33MHz processor, Windows 3.1, 4 megs of RAM, 4 megs of hard disk space, a double-speed CD-ROM drive, a Windows-compatible sound card, a mouse, and a graphics card capable of Super VGA 640x480 at 256 colors. Now, since the guys at Cyan, or Cayenne, Cyan, Cayenne, doesn't matter, you know what I'm saying. Uh, since these guys at this company are primarily developing on Macs, the Mac version of the game released simultaneously, I believe and was, in fact, the original version of the game. Now, the Mac version required at least a Mac LC or later, System 701, 4 megs of RAM, 3 megs of hard disk space, a CD-ROM drive, single or double speed, didn't matter, and 256 color graphics. Now, the Mac version was actually developed in HyperCard. Now, HyperCard's an interesting programming environment that, uh, in that it's considered kind of an early version of a hypermedia system. It was sort of a spiritual successor to the concept of the World Wide Web and the Hypertext Transfer Protocol, or HTTP, that, whether we know it or not, we use multiple times every single day. Now, the idea behind a hypercard application is uh, kind of the concept of a virtual stack of cards. Each card holds data, just like an old-style Rolodex. Now, each card contains an interactive set of UI elements, 
and uh, users navigate between cards using controls located on each card. This way, a hypercard programmer can create a logical flow or progression between cards. You can create hierarchies, you can create structure, and otherwise organize yourself using simple drag-and-drop visual tools. So with this structure in mind, you can very easily translate the structure of Myst into the theoretical structure of a basic hypercard application. Each screen is considered a card on the stack. The interactive elements on each screen are simply hypercard UI controls, and navigation from screen to screen is accomplished via hypercard kind of standard navigation controls. So basically, instead of rolling through different cards in a Rolodex, you're rolling to different screens in Myst. Now, more complex event processing was handled via HyperCard's internal programming language called HyperTalk. Display videos in the game were handled uh, by external calls to QuickTime, Runtimes, and other different kind of HyperCard plugins like that. And uh, I do believe that all the videos were compressed and stored in QuickTime's MOV format. It was all this rich video and audio content that required, as I said, the storage capacity of a CD-ROM. The audio in the game was produced by Chris Brandcamp. He did quite a bit of traditional Foley art style work for the game, uh, using everyday objects to create the unique sounds of the world. For example, the sound of the clock tower was a, was a recording of him hitting two wrenches together and then lowering the pitch to make it sound much deeper. The sound of bubbles was in fact a recording of bubbles coming up through water, but to get the most appropriate sound, he found he needed to blow air through a long straw deep into the trap of a toilet bowl and then record the bubbles coming up into the bowl. The things sound designers do for their craft, it's actually always, I always find it very, very interesting to hear what was required to make a sound that we think is something and actually just turns out to be something completely different. He recorded a couple of other strange things for fire because he tried recording the sound of fire and when he recorded the sound of fire to him it didn't sound like fire so he did something again completely different now Brandcamp didn't handle the game's music initially mist was to have no music at all as the miller brothers who are the founders of, of cyan and the main game designers that we're going to talk about very shortly in the dev story felt very strongly that music would get in the way of gameplay now, Broderbund kind of asked them partway through development uh, whether or not they'd be adding music, and they suggested that they did. So the two brothers got together and said, you know what, we're going to put some music in this just to show them what a stupid idea it is. Uh, they did it, and after running a few tests, they realized that uh, music, in fact, would enhance quite a few areas in the game, and uh, they immediately set to include a bunch of music tracks in the game. Uh, instead of hiring an external composer... Robin Miller recorded 40 minutes of music for the game. You've been hearing it all throughout this section, and I think it really does add quite a lot to the lonely, kind of mystical quality of the game world. I'm glad they did decide to go ahead and include some music in the game.
You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Okay, on to dev story. We went through a little tiny bit of, te- of, uh, of, of dev story there in the tech focus section, but now let's really talk about the history of this game and its follow-on series. Mist was created by a company, as I've said a couple times, named Cyan. The company was founded by brothers Rand and Robin Miller. Rand Miller was born in 1959 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He attended college at both Drexel University in Philadelphia and the University of New Mexico. After his degree, he took a position as a programmer at the Citizens National Bank in Henderson, Texas. He worked there on various large, boring financial systems for about 10 years. His younger brother, Robin, was born in 1966 in Dallas, Texas. Robin was certainly the more artistically creative of the two, embracing talents in, uh, in art and music. Around 1987, Rand suggested to Robin that the two of them should get together and create an interactive storybook for children using HyperCard. Robin was initially not very interested. In fact, he didn't even have a computer at the time. Despite this, Rand sent him a copy of HyperCard, which he began playing with on the Mac in his parents' basement. Robin started drawing in black and white. He tells it like this. I started drawing a manhole cover. That was the first part of the story, and I continued drawing a linear story. I drew the manhole cover open, and I just continued drawing, sequentially, this storybook. But I got this vine growing out of the manhole, and I didn't know what I wanted to do at that point. I didn't want to know if I wanted to go up the vine or down the manhole. And from there, the medium itself became non-linear. It's as if the medium was calling out to be non-linear. It was not something we really invented at that point in time or were trying to do. It just happened on its own. So this simple story route became the first game released by their newly founded company, Cyan. They simply called it The Manhole. It released on floppy disk in 1988 for the Apple Macintosh. In 1989, a CD-ROM version of the same game was developed and released by Activision. Or was developed by them and released by Activision. This is notable because it is more likely than not that this was either the first or one of the very early CD-ROM-based games to be available in retail channels. Another interesting aspect of the manhole was that the game didn't have a goal. The point of the game was simply to explore either up or down the beanstalk and discover the worlds on each end. The manhole was fairly successful, and the Millers continued developing black-and-white hypercard-based children's adventures, They continued this until 1990, when they had five children's games under their belt. They decided it was time that they should make a game for adults. Uh, They came up with an idea for what they called a goal-oriented fantasy adventure. The environment would be totally textless, with uh, the player navigating using only their senses. The game would also not feature enemies or combat. The player is expected to use their wits to get around the world. They tentatively called the game The Grey Summons. They pitched The Grey Summons to Activision, who pretty quickly passed, telling the brothers that they should stick to kids' games. The company wasn't doing very well financially at this point, and their big new idea had been shot down by the one publisher that they had any relationship with. It was not looking great for Cyan. As luck would have it, however, Sunsoft, a Japanese publisher, approached them with a proposition. Make them a game for an older audience that they could release for consoles, and Cyan would be able to release the same game themselves for PCs, since Sunsoft did not care about the PC market. This was incredible news. 
However, while the Millers had their pitch for the Grey Summons, it was really very high level, without any type of gameplay details or even a real story. They got to thinking, uh, you know, they wanted to create a freely explorable world and a non-linear story with interesting but believable characters. This was this was a very reasonable goal for them to uh, to aim for. So they continued thinking. They thought back to their experiences playing Dungeons and Dragons with uh, their other brother when they were kids, and they hit upon something. They remembered the incredible fun they had when playing with a very good and compelling dungeon master. Rand had created his own D&D dungeon, and Robin remembered one very interesting aspect of playing Dungeons and Dragons with Rand. He took a huge amount of time to create the story and world of the dungeon, and he threw out all the mundane mechanics of D&D. There was no dice rolling for character creation, and in fact, no dice rolling at all. He simply told players that they were themselves. They had all their own knowledge and their own intelligence. They simply needed to apply it in the context of the current universe they were playing in. So this level of storytelling and this sense of adventure would form the core of their game. On top of this, they took inspiration from the non-linear gameplay of Zork. The linking books were inspired by the Chronicles of Narnia, and the concept of the mysterious island was taken from Jules Verne's 1874 novel named, well, The Mysterious Island. They also claim that Star Wars was a huge influence on the universe, though they didn't take anything directly from those films. They also knew their game needed puzzles, but they didn't want the puzzles to be arbitrary. They decided early on that they were not, in fact, making a game for gamers. They were making a game for everyone. In their minds, gamers love puzzles for the sake of puzzles. Non-gamers wouldn't mind puzzles if they were simply presented as logical obstacles in the world. For example, in the Channelwood Age, there's a puzzle where you need to channel power to various pieces of machinery on the island. This is certainly a puzzle, but when you're playing, it doesn't feel like a puzzle. It's just a problem that you need to overcome to keep moving forward. And then when you come back to it to channel power somewhere else, it's just a different kind of the same problem. Because of its concept's root in D&D, the Millers playtested the concept of the game before they actually began development. One of them would take the role of Dungeon Master and describe a scene. The other would consider the scene and say what they decided to do. This way, gameplay and mechanics could be fine-tuned even before a single line of code was written. If you remember back in the Fallout show, that team did a similar thing to test their special stat system. They sat down around a table and they played a pen and paper version, effectively, of Fallout. So this is what the, uh, the Millers are doing here. The brothers had also decided that their game needed to have next-generation graphics. Their kids' games were nice-looking, but they were very flat, grayscale drawings done by Robin. They decided this game needed to be in color and look amazing. So they went the obvious route. Robin started hand-drawing some scenes in Photoshop. He quickly came to the realization that his hand-drawing skills were not up to the task. On top of that, hand-drawing every scene they intended to have in the game would take much too long. Robin turned to some 3D modeling tools that he had worked with on some earlier games, one in particular called Strata Vision 3D. He created the flat layout of Mist Island and then added a grayscale extrusion map. This told the program how to render the elevation differences on the map. The darker an area, the higher up it was, the lighter an area, the closer to ground level it was. On top of that, he created a color map, which would define grass, sand, and rock areas on the ground. Finally, he could add buildings and trees to the model, and they could model the level of cinematic gameplay that they were seeking. One big issue they did have with the graphics 
were uh, slow load times of uh, the single-speed CD-ROMs at the time. They needed to do everything they could to speed the loading of new screens. To do this, they compressed all the, uh, the QuickTime videos as much as they could using a certain codec whose name I cannot recall right now. Um, so they compressed as much as they could while maintaining some degree of video quality. In addition, all the static screens were reduced from a 24-bit true color to 8-bit 256 color. This made a 500 kilobyte image at 24-bit into an 80K image at 8-bit. To keep the game looking rich, though, they used a limited color palette in each age, giving each one a specific look and kind of a specific group of colors and maintaining the ability to use more shades of less colors. So in fact, single-speed CD-ROMs at the time were so slow that they actually ended up going to the extent of laying out the data on the CDs by hand, grouping files for each age as close together on the CD track as possible so as to minimize seek time. So you can actually map out. I was in, in my studies about this game. They actually had a photo of a diagram of, uh, of the missed CD, and they actually knew where on that single spooling CD track each age was located. If the data had been randomly distributed, the load times would have been so high that the game basically would have been unplayable. The brothers were certainly looking to create a huge continuous non-linear world. However, they were limited not only by speed of CD-ROMs and things like that and performance of computers, but they were also limited by their agreement with Sunsoft. Now, this game had to run on Japanese consoles of the early 90s, which had no hard drives. This means the entire active portion of the game had to fit in an early 90s game console's internal memory. This is what led to kind of the, the, the sort of hub region design of the game. So Mist Island was the central hub by which you could travel to any age you wanted. Each age could then be loaded into memory separately, thereby lowering the game's active total memory footprint. The Millers remained heavily involved even through the game's testing phase. They enjoyed observing two testers playing together. This way, they could overhear the testers' conversation about what they liked about the game and what they didn't like. They didn't want their testers to simply locate bugs. They wanted input on the experience. They were also sure to use non-game playing testers to ensure the game was as accessible as possible while still being somewhat challenging. For example, one aspect of the game that was added after some rounds of testing was Atris's note to Catherine explaining how to find his message by the dock that we discussed in the gameplay section. Since this game, being as unique as it was, this game had no kind of, I guess, what, how, how do you call it? I always know the word in French. It's the élément perturbateur. I guess the, the kind of inciting incident, I guess you can call it, uh, that starts off the game. Like, you know, in Space Quest, where Roger Wilco's ship that he's a janitor on gets attacked by the Sarians and stuff like that. This game doesn't have that. Since the game didn't have one of these incidents uh, to kick off the story, players initially had difficulty figuring out where to go and what to do. You were just kind of on this island. People would walk around, but they had no idea what they were supposed to be doing. So that, that note was added to kind of give you a little bit of direction right off the bat. So in September 1993, Mist released. Now, I found some conflicting information. Some sources say the Mac and PC versions uh, released simultaneously, and others say the PC version came out in early 1994. If anyone knows for sure, drop me a line, podcastumbcast.com, just because I feel like they would have came out simultaneously. But 
God only knows. A couple places definitely say that uh, the PC version released in 94. Anyways, the game was a surprise hit. It's widely regarded as one of the killer apps that drove people to adopt the CD-ROM as a medium. Myst was the best-selling PC game of all time until it was unseated by The Sims, the first original Sims, in 2002. So from 1993 to 2002, that's nine years, nine years, nine years, 93, yeah, something like nine years. Sure, I'll go with that. This was the best-selling PC game of all time. Of course, this success engendered sequels. Riven, the sequel to Myst, released in 1997. In this game, Atris asks you to help for your help in rescuing his wife, Catherine. Myst 3 Exile was released in 2001. This game describes the reasons Atris imprisoned his sons in the first place. It was not developed by Cyan, but by a developer named Presto Studios, and it was published by Ubisoft, who had picked up the, uh, the distribution license by then. Myst 4 Revelation was the first game in the series to be published solely on DVD-ROM in 2004. It was developed and published entirely by Ubisoft. In fact, the game was built in my hometown of Montreal by Ubisoft Studio there. Uh, Peter Gabriel was brought in to do some music for the game. Myst 4 ties up some loose ends from, uh, from the first game. Atris summons you back to Myst to see if the imprisonment of his sons has in fact reformed them. Finally, in 2005, development of Myst returned to Cyan, now known as Cyan Worlds. Myst 5, End of Ages, was created by Cyan and published by Ubisoft. This is the first Myst game to dispense with the pre-rendered 3D graphics and takes place in a real-time 3D engine, as we're used to seeing in most, I guess most games, I was, I was going to say most FPS games, but most games in general today take place in a real-time real 3D engine. Unlike in previous games where, despite your actions, you'd be given a choice of how to end the game, Myst 5 determined the fate of the game's characters via your actions throughout the events of the game instead. Myst 5 was announced to be the final installment of the series. Now, the original game has also been ported and re-released countless times. You can find versions of Myst for many handhelds, including the PSP, the Nintendo DS, and a version for almost every console except, as far as I could see, any flavor of the Xbox. I guess Microsoft doesn't really care for Myst. The PC version was also re-released twice in 2000. The first was a remastering of the original game called Myst Masterpiece Edition. It has re-rendered 24-bit color graphics and remastered higher quality sound. Also in 2000, we saw the release of Real Myst. This was a remake of the original game set into a real-time 3D engine. So instead of moving from screen to screen, you could freely roam the island and the ages. Uh, though the game was developed by Cyan and released by Ubisoft, Robin Miller was quite disappointed when he saw the finished product. He felt it was an overt money grab banking on the name of the game. Real Myst ran very, very slowly on machines of the time, and well, it looks much nicer, and it runs much smoother on modern machines today, at the time, it just did not run very well at all. So what does the future hold for Myst? Well, I could not find much, and based on the Miller's announcement that Myst 5 would be the last game of the series, things don't really seem so great. Now, one aspect I didn't talk about up until right now, it was the offshoot uh, game named Uru Ages Beyond Myst. Now, this was meant to be a multiplayer online game in the Myst universe. In 2003, the single-player version of Uru was released. 
due to less than seller sales, the multiplayer release was canceled. However, in 2007, Cyan released the multiplayer game via GameTap. Sadly, due to insufficient subscribers, it was closed down in a little over a year, and the rights were returned to Cyan. Uh, they then open sourced the game, and it does appear to be live and free to play at mistonline.com. So while I don't think we'll get another official sequel in this rich universe, it does seem to be living on in some form. So time for the rest of the emails. We got a few more emails here, aside from that first one we read at the top of the show. These ones are talking about Mist specifically. So the first one is from Elima. She writes, Hello, Joe. Definitely looking forward to the next podcast as I have really great memories of Mist. I remember that it was a pretty big game at the time as it was on a CD. The go- a gorgeous setting, real actors, and FMV. Not to mention that the sound design was pretty well done. Gears grinding, wheels turning, waves softly licking at the island's dock. The whole thing was very evocative. Okay, so I confess, I never actually got off the island myself. But I remember watching my father play through Channelwood, which was absolutely beautiful. The entire world design, the premise of linking books, is still something I find very compelling. Ultimately, Mist 3 remains my favorite in the series as the first installment I actually finished myself. But the first game is without a doubt a hallmark in the history of video games. Even clicking around that island left me wide-eyed in wonder. Anyhow, sorry for the long email, and thanks a bunch for the podcast. Stay awesome and hear you next week, Emilia, or sorry, Alima slash Emily. It's it's actually very interesting where that you know we have a lot of evocative memories of these old games, and you know maybe we didn't even play them much ourselves. But, you know, as you said, you occasionally would see your father playing and he'd be somewhere where you hadn't been. And, you know, maybe as as younger kids, these games were kind of maybe not above us, but we didn't have we just didn't have as much information, as many resources to kind of get through. So if you got stuck, you kind of just remembered that first part of the game that you played kind of very vividly. And and when you're younger, it's almost like that part is enough. You don't feel like you missed anything. You just remember clicking around and going to the different places and pushing buttons and trying to do things. And and that's where your memories come from. It's not, oh, I finished the first mist and if I didn't finish it, then it was a crap game. So, you know, thank you for those memories and keep on sending them in. I love them. Next, a voicemail from regular contributor, Josh. Take it away, Josh. Hey, Joe, this is Josh from Portland, Oregon, calling in again. Um, so I was, I, I literally choked when you said you were gonna do mist because uh, I love the mist game series. Um, but uh, I'm sure you're going to cover it really well. So I'm going to sidebar on you and tell you a little bit about um, a piece of the Myst universe that I'm not sure how many people know about, but specifically I'm talking about the Myst books. Um, Now, I've tried to read many video game tie-in novels, and I've never found one that I could even get, you know, into. I mean, it just never hooked me. Um, Unfortunately, you know, I mean... We're talking Pulp Fiction, you know, type stuff. Uh, like, I've read some of the Halo series, some Dungeons & Dragons stuff, and I just could never get into it. Um, so, yeah, game tie-in books weren't for me. Uh, but I ended up being, in college one day, stuck in what was a... Uh, uh, it was it was the library is what they called it, but it was not the library for the school I went to. It was the dorm library. We had this little tiny room, and, of course, there were... the 
textbooks from ages past in there. Nothing interesting to read. I got stuck in there because we had a bomb threat and it was, the building was on lockdown. So I'm in there and there's nothing to read, but I'm sort of digging through these books and I find this one called The Book of Atris and it happens to be a Miss Tie-In book. Now, I didn't even realize it was, but uh, The Book of Atris uh, was written by the writers of the Miss game, um, Rand and Robin Miller, but uh, with uh, another writer named David Wingrove, who's really a talented sci-fi writer. Um, and I read the book, and I pretty much, um, I started it, then I took it with me, I completely stole it from the dorm, um, read it cover to cover in about a day, which is a lot for me. I skipped class to finish reading. It was that good. Um, and the book is actually the story of um, Atris, who's a character you'll, you'll, you don't meet him in the, in the Mist first game, but it's, the whole game is because of him, basically. And you meet his sons, um, Cirrus and Akinar. And uh, um, so that book tells about his youth, essentially, where he came from, and um, it tells you all about the civilization of Denai, and you get to meet his father and mother and everything. So it's pretty cool because it's a, it's, it's a backstory. But it's the backstory that happens essentially right before... Um, the, so there's three books in this series. It's kind of hard to explain. But uh, there's the Book of Atris, and then, and then it goes the Book of Tiana, and then the Book of Denai. Well, they're all sort of uh, screwy. Like, the Book of Atris happens before the Mist game, and then the Book of Tiana happens before the Book of Atris. And then the Book of Denai happens way before that. And it's, it's the Atris grandfather, and his name is spelled even different. So it literally is a prequel, and then that's a prequel of a prequel of a prequel. Um, sounds convoluted, and if, I, if it was explained to me like that, I probably wouldn't read them. But they are so worth a read. Um, you can get... So I got, I got the first book, and then I asked for the second two for Christmas that year. My wife um, is amazing, and she got me the, the, the reader, which is all three together. I recommend giving them individually because that reader is heavy. Um, but uh, yeah, absolutely, this is not what I would call pulp fiction. Um, it is brilliant writing, incredible adventure. It's literally the best adventure story I've ever read and ever lost. So uh, yeah, uh, if you're a fan of Myst, get the, get the books and you will absolutely love it. And it'll make you want to play more Myst. And unfortunately, um, I don't know how, I, I really don't know if there's much of a future for Mist, but hopefully you can dig more up on that than I can. All right, Joe. Thanks so much, buddy. Talk to you later. Thank you, Josh. So I guess for me, um, I, I have I have a very specific memory of reading a Mist book while I was in high school. I have no memory of what was contained inside the book. I know my friend Chris gave it to me because he he was really into uh, really into Mist and he had this book. And he said that I should read it. And uh, I certainly did. I want to say it was a novelization of the actual game. But I might be totally wrong. So it might have been one of the books that, that you're talking about. Because I literally have zero memory of, of the contents of that book. And uh, I, I perused through my uh, my bookshelf. And I don't seem to have it anymore. I must have given it back to him. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly something that's interesting. I... There's a couple of, of game tie-in books that I do enjoy. I think I've mentioned in a few other episodes, obviously. Uh, well, Battletech isn't really a, a game tie-in. The game is a tie-in to the books and the uh, and the tabletop game. But I'm a huge Battletech nut. Uh, there's, I think, something to the effect of six or seven or five, five to seven Wing Commander books that, uh, that I definitely enjoy. 
that are related to the original series of games. There's some books that uh, are related, some Wing Commander books that are related to the very, the very bad movie that came out a little while back with Freddie Prinze Jr. in it. And uh, I don't think I've read those, or maybe I read one of those. But uh, the the original Wing Commander game relation books are 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 very good, at least in in my mind. I remember the reading them very very much over and over again. In fact. When I was younger, so you know, some 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 game uh, game tie-in books can be quite good. You just got to kind of find one that that works for you. I never quite got into. I know there's some Doom books which can't be all that great. The Halo books I, I never got around to reading, but uh, you know, between that, Star Wars EU, I mean, there's all kinds of all kinds of cool uh, cool tie-in books around there. So thank you so much for that. And yep, everyone, if uh, you know if you're into Mist, then uh, hey, give the books a whirl. Who who knows? Maybe maybe you'll find uh, you'll find some great reading that you didn't know of before. Hi, this is Chris, and this is Rick, and we're the hosts of the Ragtag Fugitive Podcast. We're celebrating the original Battlestar Galactica series, and we're doing that by. Uh watching an episode in total and commenting on it as it runs. And you know what's really fun about it is we're attempting to bring guest hosts in with us so that we can talk kind of like that mystery science theater kind of thing. And we sometimes we make a little fun of the episode, and sometimes we talk about how cool it is, so you just never know what you're going to get when you listen. Yes. So come and join us. We're on iTunes. You can find us by searching for Ragtag Fugitive Podcast, and we're on the Stitcher Radio Network. You also can visit our cool website and make comments and have fun looking around in the officer's lounge and all that jazz by going to ragtagfugitivepodcast.com. You have our word as a warrior. Word as a warrior? Plank down your cubits and come on over and let's play a game of Pyramid, the Ragtag Fugitive Podcast. So where can we get missed today? Well, all the games I've discussed, all five missed games, Manhole and Uru are available both via GOG.com and Steam. So all these games are very, very easy to get your hands on. I did experience one crash on Windows 8 while playing the GOG version of Mist Masterpiece Edition, so don't forget to save. Overall, though, the install and the gameplay were very painless and uh, very straightforward. Okay, so big question of the show. Does Mist hold up today? Well, I guess I should confess up front. I never played Mist back in the 90s, or if I did, it was at a friend's house for like 15 minutes. There were two reasons for this, and I remember these two reasons very specifically. For some reason, I thought that this was a game for people that liked Macs. I did not have a Mac. I didn't really care about Macs. I didn't care to play Mist. From the small amount of gameplay, secondly, that I was exposed to, I didn't find that the game was very fun, and maybe I just dropped into the middle or whatever, but uh, to me, it looked like an incredibly dull game. You didn't get to shoot anything. It was just kind of the slideshow and uh, blah. Well, with those two reasons in mind, maybe it took 20 years of growing, but playing through it for this episode showed me that I had missed a lot. Now, this is not an action game. In fact, it's very slow moving, but frankly, I don't mind that. The Masterpiece Edition updates the graphics to some degree, and while things are still a little rough looking in places, the game looks great. The music and sound are still very ambient and evocative and incredible, and uh, the Masterpiece Edition even includes an integrated hint system if you get a little bit stuck. This game is so important to the history of PC gaming and the history of the CD-ROM as a medium that it really does bear playing. On top of that, unlike... Previous games that I've said aren't all that good, but are historically 
accurate or you know are historically important this is a game that is a lot of fun it really requires you to think to write things down and to use your brain not many AAA titles these days require that type of commitment this is also a great game for kids even today as because you know there there is no violence in it whatsoever this one is a definite recommend for me you must play mist if you have not you should if you played it in the past you should play it again because you will be reminded how much fun it is Ah, the Upper Memory Podcast, one of the best podcasts around about geeky old-style gaming on computers. Well, we talk about old stuff as well. We talk about old classic television programs and films from around the world. So, if that's your cup of tea or coffee, then why don't you listen to us? We're called Waffle On Podcast, and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or to our main site, which is waffleon.podbean.com. We would be honoured if you'd join us. So that is that for another show. Thanks again to everyone that sent stuff in. Keep those emails and voicemails coming. Next time, I'm going to cover another unique game from a little later in our general time frame. I will be revisiting Peter Molyneux and Bullfrog with 1997's Dungeon Keeper. So as usual, you can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Special thanks, as always, to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him over at moyermultimedia.com. You can check out the show notes at umbcast.com for this episode and all previous episodes. You can join our Facebook group over at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Lots of fun over there, as always. And you can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. Finally, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or stream it live at Stitcher Radio. You can also leave reviews on both of those services for the show. I really do enjoy it and appreciate it when you do. So that is that for another show. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time for Dungeon Keeper here in the upper memory block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.